0: This week on the Table Podcast. We recently interviewed someone for a faculty role and she kind of said, that someone had told her when she was interviewing that you learn a lot of hard lessons in your first job and you just kind of apply it in your second. I was floored by that. It's like, well, why can't we just get it right the first time? Additional avenues for why people are leaving their first jobs is I think people do ignore geography for red flags. They ignore compensation for red flags. And like I said, 100% of our workforce is going and doing something else. We need to kind of prepare them and coach them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to
1: the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during Cine and digital subtraction angiography. geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See RADPAD.com for more information and contact info at RADPAD.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable Podcast. Now, back to the episode. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Table to Podcast. Today, we've got a great episode lined up. We're going to be discussing the perspectives and expectations of IR training with Dr. Thomas Sullivan from Wake Forest. Welcome, Thomas, to the show. Awesome to be here, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah. So, Thomas, you reached out to me, gosh, what was that? Maybe, was it six months ago?
0: Almost two years ago. But
1: was it two years ago?
0: Really? Mm-hmm. With this survey? Yeah. Mm-hmm. hmm Wow. It seems no. like it wasn't that long ago. No. I asked for a little bit of input and a little bit of help, and you wrote me a very nice, helpful, detailed email and away we
1: went. Nice, yeah. And and so I knew that this was going to be important. And you actually made reference to one of our episodes with Baratza and I, which was, like, I don't know, probably three, four years ago, where we were talking about when that first yeah. job doesn't work out. Yeah, the
0: first, like, hundred episodes. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly.
1: Yeah, where we talk about that all the time. <laughs> And it was because it happened to Mike, it happened to me, it happened, the only person I think that it didn't happen to, it actually happened to Allie. It did not happen to Sabine, it did not happen to Chris, they lucked out in that they're still in their first jobs, but on that note, are you still with your first job? No. No. Not even close. Yeah, it's common, right? And so we're going to dive into that and like what you uncovered with your survey, but first off, give our audience an introduction of where you're at, what your practice looks like.
0: Of course, I'm an assistant professor of radiology at Wake Forest. I'm the associate program director for the integrated diagnostic and interventional program. And then I'm the assistant program director for the diagnostic program. So I get to wear two hats and right now I kind of get to be the fun uncle. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, The majority of my practice is mostly venous reconstruction, portal vein interventions, and spine.
1: Okay. Venous reconstruction kind of become big in the last like what probably five years we didn't have all the tools that we needed like 10 years ago like when I was in fellowship would you say is that become something that's relatively new in your practice
0: yes the stents got better and some of the techniques got more refined and proliferated into in from academics into the community and there's a lot of very sophisticated players in the space now
1: right you got people like Brooke Spencer out there and Jeff Chick, and and they're really sharing that knowledge which and experience, which is great too, right?
0: Right. And they're great resources and wonderful. Yeah. Done a lot for a specialty.
1: Yeah. Wait, so what kind of, just, we, we like to talk about training programs, especially since this is going to be the topic for today. But tell us a bit about like the mix of cases that your residents get to see in case there's any med students out there listening that are interested in applying for training at, at WAKE.
0: Yeah, we're finishing our recruiting cycle at the moment, but we have a very dynamic training program and I'd love to get into that a little bit as far as and some of the things that we've done in response to the survey and some of the changes that we made here, but we have a very robust IO practice. We have a OBL experience, we have a peripheral experience, and we have a very robust spine and portal vein intervention practice. Fantastic. I mean, our job is to get our trainees exposure to everything. So that they're able to survive and thrive in any practice environment that they find themselves in.
1: Yeah, that's good. You're right. We are going to dive into that with the results of this survey. So let's get into it. How did this project come about? You reached out to me a couple of years ago. I had minimal like input. You said I sent you an email back. I do remember giving a couple of questions that I was curious about, which was one of which was, I think, mentorship. Yeah. And you put them in and I, and the results are incredible, right? Absolutely. And so we'll get into that as
0: well, but tell us about how this project came about, why you became super interested in it. So my very good friend and former partner, Moaz Chowdhury and I were talking one day and we were commenting like nobody from any of our training classes are in their first job. And well, I mean, this is horrible. You consider the expense, the personal injury that goes with perhaps buying and selling a home, moving a young family, all of the things that go into making your first job work. And then statistically within the first two years, it often doesn't. And I know, I mean, everybody from my fellowship class at the University of Miami is in their second job. And so we were trying to figure out, okay, why, like, what is really going on? And I think that radiology in general, just kind of accepts it as the norm and thinks that it, and normalizes it. When you really think about what that means to make that big change Early on, when you're just starting out, when you're looking at an enormous student loan burden, you're looking at trying to build a practice, you're trying to establish yourself or a partnership track, you know, you're buying in You're this is a very difficult financial relationship to unwrap. It totally is.
1: And the the whole partnership to me thing can be like a a bait and switch situation. And so to me, and this was why the question that I added was to me important was what kind of mentorship is people are people getting? when when they're applying, when they're in training and they're actively like interviewing for jobs, where are they looking for advice on like the contract and the location and do you know these people? And so you're right, because I was seeing the exact same thing. And so when you came, when you presented to me, I said, This is a great project. How can we help? And and I think back to we were able to like disperse it amongst our
0: audience, which tell us about how many responses you got. So we got a little over a hundred and we we had about like twenty questions. A lot of it was demographic data. But a lot of it was just kind of their feelings and their impression. And we actually used a wonderful medium called RedCap, which enabled us to have dials rather than have it be binary or multiple choice, which actually generated some pretty robust data that was able to give us some pretty nice statistical means. I think it illustrates very well that our residents emerge from their warm academic cocoons and face an environment that's very different from their training program. I don't think we do very well. I mean, an academic hospital has very different stakeholders from community settings and OBL settings and mentorship is mentorship and coaching, because I believe that those two are different, nuanced are very, very important.
1: I guess, tell us a little bit about like, what were the other key
0: questions at part of the survey that you were looking to kind of find answers around? So we looked at what people wanted to actually do with their jobs. So we, we asked, okay, so what percentage of IR do you want to do? What percentage of diagnostic imaging do you want to do? What kind of IR do you want to do? One of my favorite questions was, I thought it was kind of cute, was if I don't do a portal venous recan tips today, is my day going to be complete? That was 100 versus I'm good with a para and a thora today, that's fine, then that was the number one. And so we are able to kind of stratify the level of complexity that our trainees were interested in doing. Let's see, what else did we do? Clinic, some of the clinic information was revealing. Oh, 90% of our Respondents indicated that clinic was essential to growing practice, but when we asked a different question about how they wanted their dedicated IR clinic and how and what they wanted to actually do with it, a lot of them really actually was very heterogeneous in terms of what time they thought that clinic was useful. So we also asked about practice setting. That was another one that we wanted. So as 20% of our respondents were interested in an academic job, 46 wanted to go to private practice, and then 12 were interested in an office-based lab with the remainder of not really knowing. I thought that the 12% interested in OBL was very interesting. That never would have been the case when I was coming out or you were coming out of training. Oh, we didn't even know what and one then it was. Nearly half one. And I know, right? We did. This is a new thing. Yeah. And then it's only going to proliferate. Right. And the nearly half wanting to do private practice was also very interesting to me. Yeah. So when did
1: you start getting this data back? Because it was a couple of years ago it's sent out, right? We built it and we disseminated it in July. Okay. This last July. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then
0: how long did it take to like go through and process it and everything? It was fast because this database basically spit out all the information for us and... And it was very easy. We actually internally validated our survey and some of the results with somebody internal at Wake in our research division that was able to look at it and say, you know, this is a very good survey. You guys did a very nice job, which was nice to hear because we kind of made it up. But, you know, it was validating. And we spent maybe three or four days together and with also with our division director, Mike Miller's input, looking at what the survey respondents said and really what they meant. And starting to think, okay, well, some of these things are interesting. Some of them are not. When, like your question about mentorship. So a third didn't feel like they were appropriately mentored, which on the surface looks okay. But if you think about a couple hundred trainees coming out every year, that's not insignificant.
1: Well, what would be interesting, and I don't know if you guys dove into this, is was there any correlation between that third that did not get mentorship and then the percentage that left their first job?
0: It's about the same. It's about
1: the same. Yeah. Yeah. i just wondering if it's the same people. You know what I mean? I don't know if right. you're able... And
0: that would be a question for the early career section in SIR. Yeah.
1: Right. Oh, and speaking of, was there any... I know SIR has kind of similar projects going on. Was there any collaboration or was this solely run by the Wake Forest people?
0: We actually asked for help and we didn't get it. Yeah. So what we ended up doing was bootstrapping the project. We looked up program director's emails and emailed the program director's. And we went through them because we thought it was best to not necessarily direct go to their trainees, but I wanted the program directors to know about it because I wanted them to also think about what we were doing.
1: Sure. And then it seemed like you got a pretty good reception from them.
0: They just sent it to all their residents. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our feedback was very positive. Like they said, thank you for sending this out. This is very important. The other thing that was revealing about the survey is we had a free response section and some of the comments were just amazing. and a lot of fun to read.
1: Yeah. Anything that stands out that you could share with us?
0: I have it ready here. Yeah, let's do it. I did, I did end up making a word cloud and because I, I presented this at C's in October and I wanted people to kind of see what people were saying and make it easy.
1: Yeah. So those of you who are listening on audio, will have this on YouTube so you can go through the PowerPoints if you want to, but we'll
0: describe them as we're going through them. The question that we asked, what would you change about your current training environment with respect to preparing you for the real world? A lot of people said more networking and career guidance, opportunities to see a private practice or hybrid models to better educate it. All we know is academics, marketing and building service lines and convincing DR heavy private practice groups, the importance of high quality IR. See, what else do we have? How to start an OBL. How to start an OBL. But you guys are covering this. This is why this is such an important platform, integration of diagnostic responsibilities in an interventional practice. Like our residents go from one rotation to the other, but a lot of hybrid jobs don't really work that way. A lot of them want more autonomy in seeing clinic patients, better expectations for what real IR jobs are like, and they're not all like where I trained. And one of my favorites was many of the academic faculty at my institution are very quick to criticize anything that happened at an OSH particularly anything in private practice. I've heard firsthand statements along the lines of, well, all they care about is money, and most of them have never operated in private practice and some degree of superiority complex. But the reality is, is these are very competent and good physicians practicing in the community with the resources that are very different from what we have in academics. It's not fair.
1: Yeah. The other interesting one is integration of diagnostic responsibilities in international practice, which... It's so real, I mean, especially for, you know, these IRDR practices, which are still the probably dominant model out there, right? In private practice. And it's true. That was part of the problem with my first practice is like I joined and they're like, by the way, you're on weekend diagnostic call this weekend. And I'm like, what? I, you know, I haven't, hadn't done that in over a year. It had been a year of fellowship without any of that. And so I think that that is, if they're interested in that model,
0: if there's a way to get a taste of that, would be, I think, help prepare them. You know what I mean? No question. And this is something that I dealt with in my second job, actually. We had a very strong diagnostic lift and I felt like I needed to be a very good diagnostic radiologist. But I was also trying to practice build, build a peripheral program, build a pelvic embolization program. And I just didn't think I could do both things very well.
1: Yeah, it's overwhelming (laughs) for literally a graduate coming out Okay. Well, yeah, these are super interesting and helpful. Anything else that you want to go over with your
0: slides? Do you just want to go through some of them and pull out the key takeaways? Sure. So yeah, we can talk about clinic a little bit. I thought that that was one that was a good one. This is one that I alluded to earlier is how important is it for you to have a dedicated IR clinic? And, you know, obviously you see a statistical mean that's close to nineties, but if you look at the real dot plot differentiation of where people stand, there are quite a few people that don't think it's that big of a deal in the 50s, 50s and 20s. I thought that that was revealing. I wonder if there's places still, like when I was at
1: Vanderbilt 10 years ago, we didn't have a dedicated IR clinic. It was like, it was a pain to get a clinic, like a, a visit set up. I remember. And I wonder if there's still programs out there that don't, just don't have that. Maybe what, why the residents are feeling that
0: way. I'm sure there are. And I think, like, not having a clinic, like, I don't think we're building people right. Like, I I don't send my residents to the floor to check drains because I want them in the lab. Yeah. And so it, it's a balance that we're kind of walking, right? I want them doing cases. I want them doing things that we, I mean, yes, rounding and seeing patients on the floor is very important, but I think we have to be strategic about it because their training time is short. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that is interesting about the IR clinic. This is the one I alluded to earlier. Over a given week, what variety of complexity procedures would you ideally perform? And I was a little bit surprised to see that this was pretty mixed. Everyone wanted kind of a mix of get big cases and small cases, with a deference to a little bit more on the complex side. I thought that that was a nice stratification of our of our demographic. Here's our IR dedicated time question as an attending, what percentage of time would you like to spend doing IR, including procedures, clinic, rounding, and seeing consults? And it was about 80% of their time. So that indicates to me that a lot of our trainees are looking for an 80-20 kind of gig. As somebody that interviews hundreds of applicants every year for diagnostic and integrated spots, a lot of them do tell me that a diagnostic skill set is very important to them. Yeah. I mean, what's your opinion on
1: that in terms, I mean, you've been in different practice settings. To be honest, and I've talked about this on the show before, diagnostic has saved me in between interventional gigs, basically, right? Because there's always diagnostic work and you can find teleradiology, you can find locums and it's convenient and it's easy and it's flexible. Especially if you're an entrepreneur, like a good friend of mine, Brian Hartley, like he switched to diagnostic because he's trying to build a med tech company and he just can't do IR at the same time, and I get that. I'm curious to know what your take is on all that, because I know there's a big drive to separate from diagnostic, be 100% IR as a specialty.
0: I think it would be hypocritical for me to say that I think that we should all be 100% IR because I still do a fair amount of Welcome's diagnostic work. I feel like that skill set is very marketable, and I think it makes me a good interventionist. Like we do morning rounds every day, that we do a morning report, and when we go through the day's cases, and This is an imaging focused process, right? We look for every interventional oncology case. We look at the MR. We talk about a differential. We really do emphasize imaging in our training program.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's an essential part of IR and it makes you a better IR if
0: you can read diagnostic. I think. I did a body MRI mini fellowship and I think it made me a lot better. Oh, did you? Did you do it through MRI online? I actually did it in training. I did it as a resident. I spent five months doing dedicated body MRI, and I value that skill set. Yeah, you can really narrow down on those renal cysts and
1: <laughs> Bosniak <laughs> criteria.
0: I mean, I've, I've seen I've seen it get people out of trouble too, like you said, like a lesion that's T1 hyper intense and someone called it enhancing, and then it actually ends up being not an HCC. you kind of looking back and saying, you know what, this is actually not, this is actually not correct
1: oh it's so true and it comes up all the time when we get consults yeah we get consults for a liver lesion that's not really well described the referring doc all they know is it was described as something that looks suspicious and then you look at it and you're like well this kind of looks like an fnh like what are we doing yeah, yeah right cool. fine.
0: you're fine yeah yeah you're fine
1: so you're you're totally right you're totally right and then here's another
0: chart that you're showing here Yes, this is what was the single most important deciding factor for where you will choose your first job out of training. So we asked these residents, the majority of our responders were late in their training, so fourth and fifth and sixth year. And the number one was geography. And I kind of wanted to get into that a little bit because I think it can be a little bit of a pitfall. I don't know if you have any experience with that at all, but I think that there are things that people can overlook when we're looking at togetherness pressure and family or there's a specific location that we really, really want to be in, and we're willing to overlook some potential deal-breakers. The other important factor being compensation, when they're not necessarily looking at setting. And I think that your job setting and what exactly you're doing every day is a little bit more important than where you're living. But that's been my experience. And you can also make the argument that if you're closer to family and you're raising young kids that you're more likely to be successful because you have support. So, this is a double-edged sword and I think it's something that we kind of that we have to be cognizant of. Yeah, for sure. I mean,
1: it's so true. Uh, there's so many different factors that come into play and for me geography was important because we had a young child and my wife had to do her training. Basically, I had to get a job in Dallas. And I think I talked about this on that episode with Bratz, but it was Really, I was cold calling because there were no jobs. And I had to overlook a lot of stuff, basically. And luckily, the job worked out for four years, but it still didn't have everything that I wanted. And that's why I ended up eventually leaving. So I think geography, for many people, a lot of it has to do with family. And I think you, you made a good point where being close to family is like a huge factor, right? To live separately, try to make a job work. I think that's kind of, to me... What I've seen is a big red flag to be like, oh, we'll make it work for some time you know, away from family. But when you have small kids, that's incredibly challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that I thought was important along these lines in terms of geography was, you mentioned less than 5% of all trainees want to work in a rural setting. That's crazy. Isn't I mean, that interesting? Yeah, it's super interesting. And it shows the, <laughs> the like dire need there is for... Irs in a rural setting, and I don't know if Kavi's. Yeah, they did mention it. Kavi and Ian Wilson are, are working on. There's a company where they're trying to find help rural settings with
0: locums, which I think is is a great endeavor. Are you aware of that, Thomas? Have you heard about it? No, that's very interesting. This is a real problem. Like we're a we're a tertiary center with. With multiple satellites, we have hospitalists that are putting people on an ambulance for a round trip here for paracentesis, and that's ours, which is strange.
1: And then on that note, you also mentioned that the primary care docs aren't getting trained to do paras anymore because it's not a requirement.
0: No, right. The ABIM
1: eliminated a procedure requirement from their training. So we're going to be doing more of those. Or nurse practitioners or somebody's got to do them.
0: Well, who is we? right? And so we're looking at that at Wake, and this is a progressive and wonderful place. And we have myself and our program director, Carol Gere, have actually generated a procedure curriculum for the diagnostic radiology residents. And what that's going to help us out with is something that Kavi and I talked about is procedural radiology curriculum and enabling some of our trainees, which actually do end up in rural settings. We are in Western North Carolina, some of our trainees, not necessarily the IRs, but also the DRs, end up in a rural setting where they're it, and we want them to be facile with a biopsy, perhaps central venous axis, ultrasound-guided drainage, breast biopsies. We do arthrograms, and this is actually a pretty regimented and robust curriculum that we and that we sign off on. It's part of their graduation requirement that they undergo a procedural radiology curriculum because we're wise to this. We recognize that like with 5% of IRs wanting to go into rural settings, it's, the reality is it's going to be very difficult for these small rural hospitals to hire someone who's been trained to do really big, mean, scary cases in a tertiary setting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing that
1: scares me the post the thought of it is just what lab you're walking into, because again, in my old group, some of the labs that are out in like rural Texas that I've had to go and do cases at, they might have like a few coils on the shelf. They have like zero microcatheters. I mean, that to me is the scariest thing. It's just not having the resources to actually treat
0: patients. And that's an important thing that we, that we have to address into academics as well. I want them to be able to have their hands on everything because you don't know. Like I, I didn't know how to use non-detachable coils coming out of training because that's all we used yeah like i kind of made myself learn how to use nestor coils as an attending because i was embarrassed Ah, just shoot them in with some with some (laughs)
1: saline scary
0: that's i mean that's that yeah it is i was floored by the idea like i came into my job in chicago where where we didn't have detachable coils and we're level one trauma and we had a pelvic bleed. i was like oh my goodness what am i (laughs) i don't know how to fix this because I had been in a fancy private practice and a fancy fellowship that I was, you know, we had really nice detachable coil platforms. Yeah. What do you mean? What do you mean you know detachable coils? Really? That's out there. I think that's part of it. It's just giving
1: them the opportunity to, it's kind of like med students and giving them the opportunity to like see what a rural practice is like for OBGYN for example, you know? Like if we had a way to do that in IR training, have these sort of satellite spots where they even just did lung biopsies out in a rural situation. And just even getting to know those patients, those patients are actually very, very welcoming and very grateful
0: to have you there. I miss them. Yeah, absolutely. As a part of a quaternary university practice, we have a very different population from my central underserved Chicago patients. It's very different. Yeah,
1: it is. Well, moving on, there was one other piece of data that I want to dive into before you kind of summarize everything and then kind of we talk about next steps, but was the thing that we touched on early was the mentorship. And you said that 34% of all individuals surveyed did not feel like they received sufficient mentoring for job seeking and 50% of respondents solicited job seeking advice from faculty, 18% from their program director, 18% from peer trainees, and then 11% sought out job seeking advice outside their program which is very interesting. And this was the, kind of the most surprising thing for me when I was looking for a job was like <laughs> nobody in our department really. Cause I, then I realized I'm like, well, none of them have worked outside of this academic institution. That's correct. And so they didn't really have much to say and it wasn't their fault. They just didn't have that experience. And so it was really, and I didn't know anybody outside of that institution other than some guys that I worked where I did residency in Philadelphia and they had a private practice. So I reached out to them, but it was still very limited. And really it was just me and my co-fellow bouncing ideas off each other and experiences. And that's kind of how we got through the whole process. But I'd love to hear what you think about that. What maybe even start there with like, have you taken steps that way to
0: help kind of eliminate that or alleviate that? So hundred percent of our trainees are trained at a university, Aaron, but 70% of them are not going to work in a university. And as we've established, a university practice is very different from anything else. And our trainees are coming out of university practices with the expectation that this is the norm. Like I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, thinking that everybody was rich and white, which is absolutely not the case. You are a product of your environment and the cases that you see and the people that you take care of. And you can ask people questions about contracts, but the reality is, is a lot of them have never been in that kind of setting, in that kind of environment, and the counseling process is very challenging.
1: Yeah, it is. My brother went to UC Boulder, so I spent a lot of time visiting that. It's a, you're right; it's a great city, but man, real estate is not cheap up there, for
0: some reason. No, because <laughs> it's a wonderful place to live. Yeah, <laughs> but. How do we fix that? What do we do about it? I mean, I think, like you said, having a private practice relationship or having guest speakers, like we have guest speakers come and talk to us about their practices and they generally kind of like it because it gives them an opportunity to network a little bit. And then we also have a very nice OBL experience now. We're actually sending our residents to do a month in an office-based lab and they get to see that, hey, you know what, turnaround doesn't take two hours because we have a certain number of cases to do today and eight hours in which to do it versus, and everybody's there and everybody's focused and everybody's on it versus that's not necessarily the case in a academic hospital. And it's turning out to be a valuable experience.
1: Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, one other question I had on that vein was, you and I connected on social media and we've actually sought advice from each other via Twitter. Do you ever suggest that to your trainees, especially with this mentorship piece? Is like, hey, feel free to reach out to Sonny Bagla to learn about the OBL space or those people that are really
0: prominent on social media. I texted him too. I had a PAE complication and i messaged him and he said, oh, don't worry about it, (laughs) but absolutely reach out. Everyone on this platform is on it because they are looking at helping and interested in helping people out. And I would also say that building a network builds resilience and you never know when Your job or your life is not going to be what you thought it was. And reaching out to a network, being able to lean on people in different locations, different cities is always very, very helpful. And it's another reminder that this world is so small and everyone knows everybody. And yes, we're here to help and we are here to help people in training get better. Like I remember a complex case that I had my first two months as an attending, and I sent it to Brooke Spencer to take a look at. And she weighed in on it. And I was for it.
1: Yeah. I think what you're saying about network is incredibly important and something that I didn't realize as a med student or even as a trainee. But when I always think about it, I think of Jacob Fleming because he's so good. He's still a trainee, he's still under Beale, but he's so good at networking that he, when he was a med student, I met him at SIR and he just came up to me and was like, Hey, Aaron, I love what you're doing back table. It's great. And that's it. That's all he said. And I remembered him from that day. And here we are four or five years later, actually five years later, and now he's one of our hosts. And I don't even think he's that outgoing. He just likes to talk to people. And he's so passionate about IR and, and MSK interventions that I think you just have to realize that people are not, especially in IR and especially, like you said, on this platform, they're not as intimidating as you think they are, right? Dan Z is not as intimidating as you think he is. Like he's a probably nice guy and willing to talk to you. You look up to these people because we always have and, and they're in these big positions. But at the end of the day, I think that we all just want IR to thrive and we want people to, again, find the job that's best suited for them. And so I'm echoing what you just said is just network even as early as a med student, if you're interested, whatever your specialty is.
0: Absolutely, And it just, it adds more tools to the shed. Like I have Doug Beale's cell phone number. I've never called it, but I, but I have it. And it just makes me feel better when I'm taking on a more complex spine case. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And these guys are, like you said, really making themselves available because of a love for the specialty. If somebody is not, it's kind of like. Maybe this shouldn't be it. Maybe. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
0: But I mean, are we kind of circumventing a lack of training infrastructure here, or is this part of our culture in IR where we're small and we're happy to help each other?
1: It's true. But I mean, I don't know, my wife's in ENT, for example. I always use these examples because we talked about these things. And I think it's the same thing with ENT, that no program has everything. And so that's why I think Backtable has done well on these other specialties, ENT, urology, because... It's addressing questions like practice building questions, academic versus private practice questions that they don't get in training. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily unique to IR, but it probably some of these nuanced things are. For example, ENT, they have a little bit more of a robust mentorship
0: program, at least from what my wife tells me. Interesting. Yeah. But but a surgical subspecialty is generally a, what you do as a surgeon and training is a lot of what you do in practice. And we don't really have that. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. We do two very different things. Like I'm not on ob on Saturdays and then ophthalmology on Sundays. And sometimes that's what it feels like. Yeah, you're right. It's like two different worlds that we're
1: kind of teetering, balancing ourselves across. All right, so let's get into like, I know we, we've covered a lot, but I do think that maybe there's also some takeaway points and next action steps that we haven't dove into yet. Anything, you had some conclusion stuff for now here. I, I don't know if there's anything that we haven't covered here.
0: Well, I think that we kind of wanted to draw some conclusions from our data. And like I said, we kind of started out with a hypothesis that current trainees are seeking to do mostly IR. And is this leading to some of the dissatisfaction that people have in their first jobs? Do attending show up on their first day and think that they're going to see cases that they saw in training? And they're not just there. Is this what drives the turnover? Or are they learning hard lessons and then applying them in their second round? We recently interviewed someone for a faculty role and she kind of said that someone had told her when she was interviewing that, you know, you learn a lot of hard lessons in your first job and you just kind of apply it in your second. And I was I was floored by that. It's like, well, why can't we just get it right the first time? Additional avenues for why people are leaving their first jobs is i think people do ignore geography for red flags they ignore compensation for red flags and like i said 100 percent of our workforce is going and doing something else and so we need to kind of prepare them and coach them i gave a talk at the north carolina ir symposium at duke about professional identity and what factors shape your professional identity and i think having medical students be aware of some of the things that shapes them and shapes who they are in their practice who they are in their families and identifying some of those formative roles like so knowing the difference between what is a mentor you know somebody who's had a career that you want to emulate and they're kind of a resource versus a coach which is more like a program director or a division director or somebody that's there with you every day pushing you along and making sure that your day-to-day develops and I think that's something that we can definitely improve upon in our training paradigm. So future directions. I also talked about our procedure curriculum. I think that's going to be really helpful. I think having more people attack this problem of rural disparities is only the solution. I think that you're seeing hands-off hospitals. You're seeing some of the dissatisfaction that comes from IRs doing cases that they deem menial. I think there are solutions for that. And I also think that exposing residents to different practice environments and training so that they're able to be adaptable, resilient, and thrive. And I'm consistently surprised by the level of intelligence, the level of drive, and the level of confidence that I see in people coming into this specialty. And I find it reassuring despite our struggles and despite some of the challenges that we're having. So future directions, I think we're actually going to serve by medical students because I'm very interested in that data. So we're currently under the process of getting an IRB to survey our applicants to the Wake Forest Diagnostic and Interventional Program and ask them, okay, have you given any thought to what your private practice setting is or what kind of IR do you want to do? And as a program director, we're, we're having trouble identifying some of our applicants that are coming from programs that have a robust home program like we have we have applicants from duke which is a ridiculously strong home program versus some of the osteopathic schools in the northeast that don't have a strong home program and what have they done like some of them have done some amazing things like bootstrap a rotation and gone out milked their network and gone and found away rotations like we we definitely value that and i really kind of want to know what they're thinking and what their goals are because i think it'll help us forecast what the future looks like so we can ultimately settle this and kind of come to a happy medium as far as what IR and DR look like in the next 10 to 20 years. Because I mean, you and I have been in practice for what, five to 10 years, and it's very different now than when it was when we started.
1: It totally is. And those med students who you see, like take initiative and start new things like that. That's what we want at back table because we want people to help make it better. And I imagine you would want that in your training program. Absolutely, Not just the people who are checking the boxes and I did research, I did this, that's great, everything, and I know I we always joke. I always joke with Chris and Mike that like I can never get into IR nowadays. Like it's just gotten so bad. Nope. it's gotten so I wouldn't competitive. have a chance. Yeah, I just didn't. I don't have that drive for research, and it's just gotten really competitive. And that's great. It's great that we are bringing in brighter and brighter people, but you also don't want people to just be doing it just because it's the most competitive specialty, right? Like neurosurgery or you want them to be like really passionate about, truly about IR. And so that's a great way I think to weed out like the people that are truly driven is just seeing what they're doing in their med schools.
0: Mm -hmm. And this is our future.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you gotten any feedback from any of the other program directors on maybe actions that they've taken?
0: No, I think a follow-up email would be really helpful. I actually got email responses from some of our respondents and kind of future directions are going to be to kind of reach out to them and say, Hey, hey here's some of our results. Thank you for sharing. I'm presenting this at a podium talk at SIR in March. And so this is going to be something that we talk about for years to come. I really hope.
1: Yeah. Well, perfect. I'll be at SIR. Lots of several members of BackTable will be at SIR. So I'll have to be sure to care. Which day is that? Do you know
0: yet? I don't remember.
1: Okay. No worries. We can, maybe the show notes writers can add a link to it the day and time in the show notes, but well, Thomas, that's all I got for today. This is really enlightening. And thank you so much for putting the work into this. Anything that we can do at Backtable to help. I know we, (laughs) because we're so geared towards private practice that I think that that's just ends up being the topics that we decide on and that ends up helping the residents, I think. But anything else you can think of that we could be doing in terms of, assisting and creating content based off these survey results?
0: Well, I think that the content is robust and your content is what you know, makes this such a useful and wonderful platform. I think that the subscription model that you guys are putting together is very interesting and we're going to pilot it at Wake. Anytime you, know, you have university acquiring a product, you have to jump through some hoops and that sort of thing. But I think that having some of that IR toolkit items that you guys have kind of put together, I think that's really great because a lot of the value of this content is not necessarily some of the things that you and I talked about, but some of the basics. Like, I loved the uh, cholecystomy talk. I thought that was awesome because it's something that we do every single day, but nobody really looks at it. And because we have to remember that we have new people coming into this field every single year and having a robust platform for them to look at in a digestible medium that they're used to nobody's reading anymore the idea of me sitting down and reading you know Morrow and the geshwin book as a fellow it's forget it i love john kaufman's essentials book and it's a great reference but you can't read it but you can certainly listen to an episode on how to do a tips your tip series like the content on that was fantastic and then getting out into practice and interfacing with some of these thinkers just it makes me a lot better and i can translate that to my patients
1: well thank you thomas for that i appreciate you pointing out the subscription that is something new for the listeners that we are launching it's actually called back to a plus and you can go to plus.backtable.com whether you're a trainee and you want to get it program or you're somebody out in practice and you want to actually learn on the go because that's really what we designed it for being busy physicians is learning on your commute learning when you have that free time where you can multitask because, like you said, I can't sit down and read anymore. It's just—it's very challenging. It's very challenging with a busy, oh, we busy have to family. Learn. We have to get better. We, we have, have to develop. To. We have to. And the other nice thing is, like, just to compare it to conferences. Like, I love going to conferences to see people, but at SIR, for example, your talk might be going on at the same time as three other talks that I want to go to, mm-hmm. and you can't catch it all. And so and
0: SIR is wonderful, but it can be a little bit esoteric.
1: It can be a little esoteric. <laughs> And like, I want to get stuff out there that's practical that you can have access to year-round all the time. And so that's kind of the driving force behind Backtable. Thank you for the kind words. Of course. Yeah, and hope to see everybody at SIR. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts... Chris Beck, Sabine Dung, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti.
0: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from... Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali. And Manbir Singh Subject. Administrative support provided by Jimiulay Kinaburu.
1: Intro and extra music is Riparoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.